Hi, it's Rebecca from the UK and I'm here to talk about the Tower of London, more specifically the ravens that live in the Tower of London. Now, as far back as anyone can probably remember, there have always been ravens living in the Tower of London. This is based on the rather Shakespearean uh, superstition that if the ravens flee the Tower of London, or there are no ravens living in the Tower of London, the kingdom will fall. This is this is so strongly believed that they actually keep domesticated ravens in the Tower of London, just in case. Which is probably technically cheating, but still. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of- And written on the wall- And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my telling you stories of the old- There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And welcome all of you back to the show. Hi everyone. How's it going? I think that you have all been doing a great job at your various endeavors, be they controlling the world or, you know, just making it to Thursday or, you know, repainting your toenails. And yeah, I know you've painted over your big toe like seven times of the same color because you haven't had time to do anything about it and no one's keeping track and it looks fine don't tell people my secrets you're making good life choices okay you really are that busy and another good life choice would be to go on to itunes and leave us a rating and review we always appreciate that helps give us a little moment of motivation no really it's kind of the best and also other ways to reach out to us, go on to social media at Just a Story Pod, either Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Um, you can also head over to our website, JustaStoryPod.com, where you'll find pages for each of our episodes featuring links, information, um, and all of our sources. That's right. We cite our sources because plagiarism is the devil. And if you would like to find out more about our merchy merch, 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 our merchandise, There is a link to our store from our page, and you can go there and buy just a story swag for all of your lifestyle needs. Well, not all of them, but most of them. Maybe one day. No, never. (laughs) On there, you'll also find links to our Patreon page. It's another way to help support the show financially, although we appreciate all the support we get from any angle. Even if it's just good vibes you put out into the universe. Good vibes. Tell your grandma. It's awesome. One of our listeners said she listened to us while she was in labor and that's fantastic it really is fantastic and i wonder what you've imprinted on your child good vibes so i have to tell you that with my first one i watched i binge watched every season of the x-files and he came here like little vincent price and i've wondered my entire motherhood experience if i have done something to him that i cannot do (laughs) which i'm kind of fine with and would repeat could be worse at least you didn't watch law and order svu that's what i watched the second one i'm not even kidding uh-oh. <laughs> and we do have a new patron to thank, and that is Aura. Thank you for coming on board. So I have to tell you, when I was a kid, I saw My Girl 2, and there's this scene where she's like out in San Francisco, and this like yogi is meditating. 
with her, like the child, or tween. He's like, feel my aura. And she goes, I don't think I'm allowed to. And so until I was like, let's say, let's say 18, I thought aura was a bad word. And now what do you do in Austin when people ask to touch your aura? I say, get away from my aura, you creeps. Okay. And one other way to reach out to us is to call the Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. You can dial us up on the Urban Legend Hotline, and that number is 512-222-3375. And if you you are the third caller, you will win free tickets to see I Don't Give a Folk with opening act. Well, there is Folk Uke. Now, they are real, and we have seen them, and they are (laughs) quite fun. Quite a fun thing. But yeah, we don't have any free tickets to give you to go see Folk Uke. If we did, we would. But you should call and tell us about your experience with folk uke or folk lore or folk ways or your favorite dish to cook that your grandmother taught you about or gossip or whatever. So Sam, back to the story at hand. The story at hand. Uh, It's a classic, ancient tradition. Is it? The Tower of London. No, that's real. Right. That's definitely real. (laughs) Now, the Tower of London in the heart of London... And a great tourist attraction now. I've heard of it. Features an unkindness of ravens. A conspiracy of ravens? Yes, that is what a group of ravens is called. So not to spoil anything, but while I was researching this episode, I happened upon an article by a guy at the Audubon Society. He was bitching about terms of venery, or venery, not sure how you say it, and saying like, I've never heard anyone call it a murder of crows in real life. Why do we have these antiquated terms? And I was like, because they're fantastic. Because whimsy is part of what makes the world a happier place, along with keeping an unkindness or a conspiracy of ravens at the Tower of London. So a Tower of London brochure given out to tourists says, for many centuries, ravens have guarded the Tower of London. And since they are said to hold the power of the crown, it is believed that the crown and the tower will fall if ever the ravens should leave. Fortunately, these respected residents, since the reign of King Charles II, have been protected by royal decree. Centuries, huh? So as the story goes, Charles II was looking through his telescope one day with his astronomer by his side when some ravens flew past the telescopes. And he said, these ravens must go. Oh, no, he didn't. And the astronomer stopped him and said, But sire, it is a raven. If you do that, the tower will fall, and the kingdom having only just got it back. So Charles, being a pragmatist, said, We will move the observatory to Greenwich, and in the tower, keep the ravens. So he decides he's going to transplant ravens to the tower. Well, there are already ravens there, just naturally. Okay, so what is his idea? He's going to protect the ravens. He's setting forth a decree that nobody, if he, if, if he can't make the ravens go, nobody can make the ravens go. He wants to keep the ravens there because he was told if they leave, the empire will fall. Seems legit, like totally. Yeah. Seems legit. So now they do keep ravens at the Tower of London. So are they naturally occurring ravens or are these like... Oh, no, these are kept there. These are ravens that are kept there on purpose. The mythology goes on to say they must keep six ravens, and they keep more than that just as a spare. Good. Well, you know, because a few years ago, a fox got in and ate two of them. Well, 
I assume since London still exists, they must have had eight. They did. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad. That's math, folks. Now with Brexit coming, who knows how the Ravens will fare. So with this one, we can start with the original legend. Ravens are diurnal, so they don't fly at night when one is observing planets and stars and such forth. So that story is unlikely. Oh, well, that's a fair point. Also, the idea that there are no ravens in Greenwich versus the Tower of London, it's kind of ridiculous. So there's no written decree by Charles II. But, but could he write, though? Someone could. And there's no written evidence of the tradition prior to the late 19th century. Oh my god, Victorians. It was the Victorians. They're obviously to blame. They're to for blame everything. for everything. <laughs> so Jeremy Ashby, the former curator of the Tower of London, said, It's fascinating to find one which appears to be almost completely invented. We're talking about the story. But having said that, as with some of the military traditions and ceremonies, there's something so inherently appealing about the idea that the place is too important and too ancient for the modern mind to comprehend it, that I can quite see how a legend of this kind can take hold so pervasively in such a short period of time. So it's interesting because it takes this very folkloric imagery, this raven, which we'll talk about all of the folkloric traditions that ravens have today. Wow, I had no idea. But it also blends it with like this ideas of science. You know, it's like this astronomer, you know, it's like this compromise between the two. Oh, but wait, it's better. It's better because the astronomer, the man of science, is the one who intercedes on behalf of the ravens, therefore giving them a new level of credibility. Exactly. So it goes beyond just being a folktale and into the realm of legitimacy. In the mind of the listener, for sure. So you can look at this and say, okay, well, if this was invented in the late 1800s, is it folklore? It's our favorite. And of course it is. It's something where... People are telling it. It's a very oral tradition that now is written down, but there's no discernible author. Kind of changes with the time, and it still holds weight. People still tell it. So it's a, it's a good story. It's a modern urban legend. It's not that modern. It is if you keep telling it. Fair enough. But if you manufacture a story to be a legend, isn't that fake lore? It's a great question. It is, and and this story definitely rides the line between fake lore and folklore. Now, the possible origin of it is that in 1883, ravens were brought to the tower by the yeoman warders. Who are the yeoman warders? The the beef eaters. You know, oh, on gin. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm familiar with gin. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but now, they brought them as props to illustrate tales of gothic horror that they would tell to, I'm sure... Titillated ladies who were swooning. And little school children. <laughs> you know, based loosely on English folklore. Supposedly, ravens would sit on the gallows, which they most likely did. Because they eat carrion. carrion. Yeah. But then you tie it to those real people, such as it pecked the eyes out of Anne Boleyn. Now, the earls of Dunraven supplied the initial ravens to the tower cute yeah they saw them as like an avatar possibly of the raven god Bronn, who they believed had originally built their castles in wales now the legend that britain will fall of the ravens leave began in the summer of 1944 oh no with 
with everything else that began in the summer of 1944. The bombings of The Blitzkrieg. So they were possibly used as unofficial watchmen for planes and bombs. Did they give them cell phones? <laughs> like, know. how did they get the word out? Like, I guess they would, they would call. call. They <laughs> would call. If the ravens call, the Germans are coming. Two if by sea. Like, really? A modern Poe poem. It's like a Paul Revere poem. <laughs> now, after the bombing of London, there were two remaining ravens, Mabel, who managed to escape the tower, and her mate, Grip, who followed soon after. And this created a panic among the authorities, who promptly imported a contingent of new ravens for opening day. Probably got a what of ravens? A conspiracy. There you go. Because it's a conspiracy. It is. Well, so rumors and references to this began appearing in American papers, and then a bit later in British ones. You know, so at this time, looking at the legend, you can look at the kind of traditions that it can represent. Like what we were saying, these invented traditions. Can you ask them, like, is it fake lore? Is it, is it a true kind of folklore urban legend? Is that a lot of times these invented traditions come about in transitional periods? Well, it's interesting. I can see the attraction, especially during the Blitz, because it gives you a tie to your, to your roots to your history traditions like says you know we've been around this long surely this won't be the thing to do us in exactly it establishes kind of continuity with the past Mm -hmm. and a promise of the future like look at all the things we've survived before and also it's like that talisman like a charm almost like that you would give someone like a child to be brave or whatever like a teddy bear like a security blanket like a you know a piece of jewelry from home or whatever it is like as long as you keep this with you you'll be safe knowing that there's really no charm or enchantment but it's like just something to focus on that is so small that it obscures the larger picture can be very comforting yeah very very true and you know at this time during the victorian period they are inventing so many traditions oh yes oh yes we are just doing it up and we've talked about so many but especially and Britain, you know, with kind of the reestablishment of the hierarchical titles and pageantry that goes along with everything. But the Tower of London itself and the stories you hear about it are in a way their own kind of form of Victorian fantasy. What? Much of the actual Tower of London that is present today was created by the romantic architect Anthony Slaven, who Prince Albert entrusted the task of restoring the tower to its ancient grandeur. So centuries of offices and architectural features were destroyed, while new windows and turrets were added to make it this neo-Gothic, imposing building. Of course, that actually makes perfect sense. And so it links Britain and the monarchy with this remote past, the ravens in the tower, kind of dramatize the antiquity of the kingdom, but also of the tower itself. The people of this new modern age, where there was so much boom and bustle in the technical side of things the industrial side of things may have really wanted to connect themselves with the past in order to find a place in the present that makes sense to me the earliest known reference to a raven in the tower is a picture in the pictorial world newspaper in 1885 which places them near the monument which commemorates those beheaded at the tower And there are other references in the late 19th and early 20th century that also associate them with the scaffold. The gallows. Exactly. Yeah. 
1895, in a piece of RSPCA journal, The Animal World, Edith Hawthorne referred to the tower's pet cat being tormented by the ravens, Ginny, <laughs> and her nameless mate. They couldn't name the other raven. I don't know. Come on, Edith. Get it together. There is an illustration of the ravens tormenting the cat. It's oh, fantastic. Oh, I know his name. Yes. It's Forrest. Why? Because her name's Jenny. Oh, no. <laughs> Wrong country. Look, that guy's been around forever. Now, an old family firm, Philip Casting, which is now closed, supplied animals to zoos and are as pets and operated for years near the tower in Lindenholm Market. In 1955, the manager wrote to Country Life saying that he had the order for the first tower ravens framed and hanging on his office wall. Did he really? Supposedly. That's cool. Unfortunately, it's no longer in existence or it's in an attic somewhere. It's definitely in an attic somewhere. His wife cleaned out and was like, what is this? This is ridiculous. So the Tower of London is a, in its original construction was built by William the Conqueror. Good for him. The end of 1066. Battle of Hastings. And he built the White Tower in 1078. Like I said... Good for him. That guy got a lot done. And it's been used for so many things. Of course, a royal residence and armoring. And murder. Well, there were only 22 executions that actually took place. You say only. Well, there were a lot more. It's just that it was kind of next door (laughs) at the nearby Tower Hill. That feels like picking nits to me. Now, there was a Tower of London menagerie. A zoo. There was a zoo. It existed for 600 years, and it was founded by King John. In the early 1200s. Well, he was a lion, so that makes sense. And he had lots of exotic animals, such as a lion. That he was a lion. He had a lion, too. Oh. And it's actually one of the, I can't remember the type, it's one of the now extinct lions from Africa. Cool, I guess. Um, but there were hawks, leopards, monkeys, and even a polar bear. No way! Poor polar bear. He must have been miserable. I bet he got a fish biscuit. I was about to say, I hope there were fish biscuits. I feel like that was something in Lost. It's a reference we all missed collectively. You know, now it houses the crown jewels, which when you go, or at least when I went, you stand like a little conveyor belt. No. <laughs> it like whisks you past them. Hi. Don't touch. And it has housed crown jewels and precious jewels like this since William the Conqueror used it to store his treasure there. What else are you going to do with all that treasure? So nowadays, like I said, you can go and see the crown jewels, you can go and see the human warders, and you can go and see the ravens and hear all the creepy stories about how they used to kill everybody in the UK. The ravens did? Or just the the British did? Everyone in general. Okay. So if you meet a human warder and you call him a beef eater, is he offended or is he okay with it? I don't know that. Someone tell us that. You should ask him. Hello? I think it's fine. Excuse me? (laughs) But that's their official title. Wait, yeoman. Not beef eater. No. That's just on the gin. But there is one other title you can have if you're a yeoman warder. Is it a good one? Raven master. Okay, want it. I want it. I want that. Okay, so in order to be a raven master, you have to have military experience. Uh Uh-huh. 22 years. Okay, yeah, so I don't have that. And like lots and lots of medals. Cool. I bet I'm not tall enough to even be in the military. Bet I'm too short to be a Raven Master. Okay, so it is a a senior-ranking military official who has earned the right to be Raven Master. Yes, the current Raven Master is Christopher Scafey, 
and he had at least 22 years of military experience as a machine gun specialist and an expert in survival and interrogation resistance. Oh, but he's also an expert falconer. No, he's a badass mofo is what he is. <laughs> are you kidding me? These are my pet ravens. Also machine guns and interrogation resistance. Come at me, bro. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Keep the jewels. So he said, one day the old raven master said to me, the birds might like you. And he put me in the cage and thought he saw something the ravens might like. So since then I've cared for them. I knew nothing about ravens before. Oh gosh. So actually, all of the beef eaters live within the walls of the Tower of London. I didn't know that. Cool. And he said that he used to live next to the Bloody Tower, but he had to move because it was, quote, too haunted. So he's a good sport. Yeah. He's skeptical of ghosts, but as he does believe in echoes of the past. Eh, wouldn't be good echoes. Right. He said once he spoke to a little girl who was sitting near the raven cages, and when he turned around, she had disappeared. Oh, that is spooky. He also said things in the apartment inexplicably would move around, especially Christmas-related items. Okay, I want to be his friend. I want to be his friend. We can follow him on Twitter, at Ravenmaster1. Oh, Ravenmaster was taken! <laughs> I know, it's so unfortunate. So I mentioned the great Celtic warrior slash god slash, depending on what you read, Bronn, or like, Bronn the Blessed. Like brain and brawn? Yes. Ah. If you, like... Think of everything we've talked about and everything we talk about in this episode, and then go think about Game of Thrones, and you're going to go, uh. So he was this gigantic Celtic deity who figured in collections of medieval Welsh tales, and he was as crowned king over the island. And now his name means Raven. Interesting. And he used it as his symbol. And as we've talked about our Headless Horseman episode... Many people worshipped the heads and thought the decapitated heads of great people were very important objects. So I remember reading somewhere a very long time ago that one of the jobs you could have at the Tower of London, say if Raven Master were taken, is being the head tender. Is that his real name? I think it's like Lord of the Heads or something. I need to look this up. This one is can a, only hope. It, and they would go and like make sure all the heads were turned the right way and that no one was bothering them and that they were cleaning up under them and that sort of thing. What about the headmaster? I feel like that's schools. I know. It works. Or just headman. But so, Braun, in one of his great battles, had been mortally wounded. Mm-hmm. And as he was dying, he requested his companions cut off his head. That seems like a very nice thing to do. Did they wait for him to die? He was on death's door. Okay. And so he told them that if they did, he would you know, kind of soothsay for them and give them advice as they went upon their travels. So like Futurama? Yes. I don't think he had a jar there. Okay. Eventually they would take the head and they would bury it on the White Mount in London. And they had it, according to some legends, facing France. Huh. And if... Raven, bronze, head, remained there, then the kingdom would never fall. Okay, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it. You're seeing I'm maybe seeing it. possibly the somewhat origin? I see how there's a, a seed there under the ground that bloomed into a tower with ravens on top, yes. And by seed, I mean decapitated godhead facing France. Yeah. That is weird that that makes a logical th- thought. <laughs> so whenever I think about creepy creepy birds or creepy ravens or creepy flying things in general i think of nevermore oh 
on wait, the... Wait. Quoth the raven. Oh, we can't. No, we've got plans for Poe. No, we're going to save Poe. Okay, we didn't forget Poe. We didn't do an episode on ravens and forget Poe. We just have... We have plans. We have plans. <laughs> but when I'm done thinking about Poe, I think about my other favorite maestro of horror. Alfred Hitchcock? That's the one! Oh my goodness, it's time to bring out the Hitchcock voice again. The man afraid of eggs. The man who was, he was afraid of eggs, yes, but not birds. His movie, The, the Birds... birds. Might argue against that. So, interestingly enough, Hitchcock was always looking for material. We discussed this a little back in the day on our Psycho episode. But he was always, always looking for material that hadn't been done before, hadn't been brought to the screen. He wanted to keep fresh. He was terrified of becoming irrelevant. And so one day, he read a newspaper story from Monterey in California around 1961 about this flock of birds that had become irritated like slightly disgruntled Eh, like a little murdery at least suicidal they were like crashing themselves into the ground and like flying into cars on the freeway and like pecking at the doors of people's houses there were like tons of carcasses where they'd flown into buildings and like flopped down on the ground and some were wounded and there were others that were fine but because of like the flock mentality and the group, they didn't know what to do with themselves. And the group got broken up and they were like hiding in people's garages or on their porches. And so they walk out and there were these big shearwaters just like hanging out in a rocking chair on their porch or whatever. And they were all just like sitting around like, we don't know what to do, bro. So this was the obvious inspiration for The Birds, which yes. is one of Hitchcock's campiest movies. Yes, but it it's not without its merits, you see. So... This was a big mystery. No one knew why the shearwaters were behaving this way. And there were other birds, too, that were acting up. And even the sea lions were being a little weird. But you can imagine when you see nature, the things that are supposed to behave quite naturally, freaking out, it kind of portents, you know, like a, a plague of some sort or like, you know, something biblical. Right. It's terrifying. And for years, this event remained a mystery until... 2011, when a team of environmentalists from our alma mater, our alma mater, Louisiana State University, threw some light on the mystery by examining the stomach contents of marine animals that had been caught in 1961. Glad someone saved that in their garage. Well, you know, that's the thing that crazy marine biologists do, apparently. That's not that weird, because I was like, why would they have that? It's like, no, really, like that's the thing people do. No, it makes sense. We keep the odd specimens. And they found that this algae had kind of become toxic, whoopsie-doopsie, and it was affecting the seabirds' brains all along the coast of California. So there had been a big population boom in California in the 1940s, and a lot of suburban homestead neighborhood areas were set up throughout the 50s and 60s. I mean, you have seen it, right? That's like where we decided to build suburbia. Yeah, and they fertilized the hell out of their lawns. Right? And so between that runoff from irrigation and quickly installed septic tanks and sewage systems, there was a lot of runoff in the water going out into the ocean. Oh, which would cause an algal bloom. Sure. Trust me. I do. I do so much. So shearwaters have an interesting kind of interburdenal interpersonal dynamic where they set out kind of doing their own thing but they all set out around the same time and there might be a population of about 20 million of them 
and they will just all congregate around a place that looks like it has good food or whatever. So they're not moving like as one singular unit. It's kind of a, a little bit more chaotic than that. So when you get that many birds, they've been eating all this toxic algae and going cray cray. Well, then you get a Hitchcock masterpiece. Right. It's not uncommon to see 100,000 of these birds congregated together. 100,000 crazy birds. Right. So the type of acid that was specifically being created by this unique ecosystem that the population boom had incited was apparently more effective to some species than others. And so it didn't seem to be harmful to fish at first, but it did cause these like massive die-offs of certain kinds of fish, like sardines. However, the anchovies in the area did not seem to be affected by it. But they consumed the plankton that was, and then it became more and more concentrated in them. So the shearwaters would come in to eat the dead sardines, and then they would pick up the anchovies that were in the area, and they would get a very, very high dose of it. Now, this all culminated on, like, a day of terror. Around 3 a.m., there was a huge mass of birds over Pleasure Point in California, Hundreds of them began to slam into walls of houses, and the noise awakened the residents. People rushed outside with flashlights to see what was going on. Most of them quickly retreated as the sheer waters aimed for the beams of light and crashed into them. Holy shit, put your flashlight up! Birds were hitting TV aerials and breaking them off. Around 4 a.m., a shearwater hit a power line, which bounced against its neighbor, shorting them both out and blacking out part of the street. By dawn... The streets were littered with hundreds of dead and dying shearwaters. Many had died instantly. Their necks snapped when they hit buildings. Others had broken wings. Others seemed unharmed but couldn't fly. There were tons of half-digested anchovies lying around, too, that the birds had vomited up when they were traumatized. This does sound like a biblical plague. Right? Cats were attracted to the strong smell of fish and began killing the birds who were grounded. This is a bloody massacre. I mean, can you imagine? This is some shit that would happen to us. And then when people went in to try and clear them up and get them out and get all the dead birds and the dead fish and the cats and all the mess out, they're like, okay, I guess we're going to need to clean this up because it's not Looney Tunes. Eight people were bitten and pecked by the birds. And three of them had to get tetanus shots. And so there's a fictionalized book called The Birds, which is credited as the basis of Hitchcock's movie, because I think it just had too much in common not to just go ahead and pay for it. Right. Avoid the lawsuit. It was written by DeMarie, and it is a story about a man who's come home from war and decides to go be a farmer, and one day the birds start acting weird. And there is a scene in the in our book where birds begin flying into airplanes and making them crash, which isn't as weird as it sounds. We talked about that on the Omen episode. If you catch the wrong bird in an engine or anything like that, it can down you real quick. So the Antichrist causes. The Antichrist, or like Sully had the goose, remember? Hero. But she used it as like an allegory for building tensions with Russia and China and the East. What wasn't an allegory for that then? <laughs> Apparently, this is how she got out of being sued for copyright infringement. But Alfred Hitchcock heard about the thing that happened in Monterey, in Pleasure Point, on the day it happened, and called the town and was like, send me your newspapers. Some creepy guy just called. <laughs> he wants all the newspapers. <laughs> he told us not to let anyone else read them. <laughs> it's very insistent. He said something about being afraid of, of eggs. <laughs> 
so he couldn't come get them himself. And then by the end of the next day, he called and told them that he planned to use their article as research material for his next movie. Hello, I'm making a film. And by the end of the month, he had outlined the birds and had hired a scriptwriter. We get back to our ravens as we get back to the movie. There's a scene where a character's gone to pick up her daughter from school, and she's waiting for them to finish up, and they're, like, singing a song, and ravens start gathering around. It's a conspiracy. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. Ravens or crows, I guess it depends. They're related. Yeah, they actually are. And... Hitchcock was famous for not liking special effects, but he had to use some. So he needed special effects for his horror movies. There was really only only one logical place to go. Universal? Disney World! Of course. (laughs) So he talked Walt Disney into doing his special effects. So interestingly, Hitchcock hired an unknown to play his leading lady. It was her first role. It's actually Melanie Griffith's mother. Who played Melanie, which I thought was interesting. Her big scene was going to be the scene where the birds come through the roof and like attack her. And Hitchcock, of course, had told this young actress that not to worry, we'll use mechanical birds. He wanted an unknown in case something happened. He could just put her in a car and drive it into a swamp. Uh, yeah, a little too real. He's <laughs> like, no, 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 don't worry. Mechanical birds. So did he go to Disney to get some animatronic birds? Well, he did. They did use animatronic birds. They used mechanical birds in some scenes, but not, not, not this one. When she walked onto the set, she found a group of animal handlers waiting with four boxes of live crows, ravens, pigeons, and gulls. It sounds like a terrible idea. It took five days to film the scene. And every day, Hedren had to endure having birds thrown at her by gauntleted handlers. <laughs> Their beaks were held closed with rubber bands to reduce the chance of injury, but even so, it was terrifying. Finally, a bird's beak slashed her cheek, barely missing her eye. Hedron was exhausted and collapsed and burst into tears. A doctor ordered her to rest for a week. Hitchcock protested, saying he couldn't film without her, but the doctor was adamant. What are you trying to do, kill her? He said. No, just make a movie. So this is actually the beginning of a really interesting trend in film around this time. We had moved beyond the big scary atomic bomb doomsday scenario. Well, I'm still there. It was still there, but we were looking for something new. Yes. It was very used up in the 50s. And then they went, you know what could be scary? And someone's like, a monster? And they're like, no, no, no. We did atomic monsters already. How about little monsters? Lots of them. Genius. That is frightening, though. No, it is. It it is. But they did cats (laughs) and, like, rats. Oh, no. No, that's terrifying. Thousands of rats coming and trying to eat you versus one big monster. You can just get in your car and drive away. True. This is true. I've always thought that. But, yeah, there were, like, the birds and the cats and the frogs and the worms. There's some worms. And there was, but it was a moment in 50s horror cinema. Mass attacks by smaller animals. And then we went back, and you can really see this with Jaws, to the big monsters after that. So while the 1960s episode is the one that caught the attention of Hitchcock and led him to create the plague upon both our houses genre of pop horror, (laughs) there were other incidents in California. This kept happening? In 1991, it happened with brown pelicans. Okay, that's scary. That's actually really scary. They look like pterodactyls. If you've ever seen one in person, up close, they look 
prehistoric. Yeah, I mean, they really, really are scary. So they began washing up along the coast, dead or dying. And people really started to worry. And then this happened again in 2006. And witnesses reported seeing the birds flying aimlessly inland and then suddenly diving to the ground and crashing. And then in 2007, a pelican, suspecting of having been suffering from poisoning, smashed through the windshield of a car on the coastal expressway. That has to be a bad omen. I would freak out. I would. I mean, there's they're giant. So in 2011, Sybil Bargu, an ocean environmentalist at LSU, started to wonder if the recent poisonings might be connected with what happened in 1961. And she was familiar with the incident because she was a lifelong Hitchcock fan. And she'd watched the birds through a living room keyhole after her parents refused to let her see it. My mom always said that was the scariest movie she saw. My mom was really afraid of it, too. That's funny. It was the same person that I watched Psycho with. Probably too young and introduced me to the Twilight Zone. And the birds, the birds did her in. Oh, yeah. We used to watch X-Files every night together. The birds. Yeah, my mom's not a scary movie person. I'm amazed she ever saw it. So she became intrigued because Pelicans and Hitchcock. And we found out that it actually was a neurological condition affecting the birds and making them act crazy. So don't pee in the ocean. It's not from peeing in the ocean. It's from everybody peeing in the ocean. No, it's from runoff into the ocean. So birds, the idea of birds, and especially ravens and their folklore traditions, even though this can kind of be considered modern folklore in a way with the birds, we were talking about both of our parents, the scientists' parents, warned them about it and scare you about it. I'm sure Hitchcock warned everyone about it too. Yes. Hello. Have you ever seen an egg? Isn't it frightening? (laughs) Okay, so imagine what comes out of it. Do you know that that's real? That he was afraid of eggs. No, that there is a trailer for the birds in which he eats like a chicken, and at one point he has like an egg, and he's looking at it, and he like it's a boiled egg, and he said that it was disgusting to film the egg scene. <laughs> like it's a thing. It's real. But many European cultures have their folk traditions around ravens. I feel like we just kind of talked about like a a group of birds and how that's scary. Yeah, let's but get now back we down get to, to the this particular bird this character yes the raven that's what we're going to stick with (laughs) in france people believe that ravens were the souls of wicked priests while crows were wicked nuns oh my god there's so many of them like do they (laughs) think it tells you something yes it does in germany ravens were the incarnations of damned souls or sometimes satan himself i think you had to be really lucky to get to see satan himself in sweden ravens that croaked at night were thought to be the souls of murdered people who didn't have proper christian burials and in denmark people believe that night ravens were exercised spirits and if you were to look up at them and there was a hole in the bird's wing you could get turned into a raven yourself that's very elaborate oddly specific and I want to know what happened to that one guy that one time. <laughs> Don't you know, like, something happened to one dude one time and it turned into this? Like he turned into a raven? No, like, he disappeared. He ran away and, like, a raven was there the next day. And they were like, ah, oh, clearly. <laughs> That's it. We figured it out. He must have looked through a hole in the raven's wing. And we still hear some expressions used to this day that have crows and ravens at the center point. Such as to eat crow. Yes, where does that come from? I do not know. Okay, so first explain what it means to eat crow. So whenever you do something wrong and you kind of fess up to it. When you're like proven wrong. Yeah, but you you also like you eat crow by like admitting it. I think it's like you're forced to admit your mistake. I don't think it's like you offer an apology. 
Okay. <laughs> I would never do it willfully, so you don't understand the difference. I know that. That's why I'm explaining it for you. And it, it is linked to like a humiliation of sorts, right? Like it's a very humbling experience to eat crow. I wouldn't know. I'll remind you of that. You got a little black feather stuck between your teeth right there. What are you doing with that crow? Okay, so it's an American expression. Really? Apparently. So no one really wanted to eat crow, right? Like it was not a bird for eating. Yeah, it's like eating a rat. Yes. So the English version of this is to eat humble pie. You've heard of it. There's a band. And it's from like the late 1700s. But according to American etymologist James Rogers, eating crow was first used or reported in the Atlanta Constitution in 1888. And according to this story, there was an American soldier in the War of 1812 who went hunting during a ceasefire between the British and the Americans. Did they burn him in the White House? Basically. Dolly Madison saved him, I'm kidding. And he shot down a crow. He saw something flying and he just shot at it. And a British officer walked over and was like, booty shot. And he was like, thanks, mate. This is in America. It was, but it was early. They still said mate. And the officer was like, yeah, can I see you again? And he's like, sure, of course, because he's an idiot. And the British soldier pulls the gun on him and tells him he has to eat the crow that he shot during the ceasefire because he was trespassing and he had broken the ceasefire. And that was very poor form. So the soldier eats a piece of the dead crow. And the British soldier hands him his gun back and he turns his gun on the British soldier and makes him eat a piece of the dead crow. Go America. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good story as any. Good story, it's bro. Fine. It's fine. But I mean, it's, it's emblematic of making a stupid mistake and then being forced to admit it. And then in great American tradition, <laughs> forcing someone else to take the blame. This is the origin of whataboutism. Okay. So whenever I think about eating crow, I have always in my, I wonder if, and not knowing about etymology and talking about it anyway, I've always wondered if eating crow was related to sing a song of sixpence. Sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. When the pie was open, the birds began to sing. Wasn't that a dainty dish to set before the king? That one? Yeah, finish it. I don't know the rest of it. There's more? Yes. There's always more to these old nursery rhymes, and they're always more gory. I knew this part when I was a kid. You didn't know this part? No. Okay, well, I had awesome parents. Uh The king was in his counting house, counting out his money. The queen was in her parlor, eating bread and honey. The maid was in the garden, hanging out the clothes, when down came a blackbird and pecked off her nose. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Now, the original rhyme, for whatever reason mentions naughty boys, not blackbirds, being baked in a pie. (laughs) Do they bite off someone's nose? I don't know that that part of the rhyme existed contemporaneously with the naughty boys. I hope so. (laughs) So that first appeared in 1744 in Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook. Some people have suggested that it has ties to Blackbeard. Why? Because his men were paid a wage, which was unusual for pirates. And they were paid sixpence, and they had a pocket full of rye, like rye whiskey. Oh. And black beards, black birds. I think there's like some, maybe that was a mistranslation or an allusion to his beard. Seems like a stretch. And there's a story about them all hiding under the deck on one of his captured ships. And then, you know, they're boarded. And they popped up like jack-in-the-boxes. Like a pie of birds. Right. And the blackbirds pop up. Black beards pop up. Mm-hmm. And the king is in his counting house. 
and Blackbeard is taking his money and the queen is not paying any attention and Blackbeard's having vengeance by taking noses. I'm not sure exactly how the rest of it is. It's also said to have things to do with Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, apparently. She's the maid who's like waiting in the wings to take her place and each of the different, like the Blackbird's one and the Queen is one, one of the wives, excuse me. I don't know. I don't really think it has anything to do with anything. It was naughty boys in the beginning after all, not Blackbird's. I think this is ad hoc verbal staging. Yeah, sounds like it. Because back in the day, they really would bake birds into pies. Yes, they did have bird pies and they were often called surprise pies. Woohoo. I feel like you have to do jazz hands when you say it. Or coffins, which require no jazz hands. Do they have dead birds? No, but they were hollow-like coffins. I don't like that. So there was a, a course called an entremet, which meant between servings in French. And they were popular in the Middle Ages. And they were signs of wealth and luxury, etc. It was just like a time to show off. Yes, and so in the early days of this tradition, one might see like miniature versions of a castle made of food or birds that were cooked like a roast swan was one example. And they would roast the swan whole or you know, like the, the edible part. And then they would take the head, which they had saved and the neck and all that and reattach it and carefully redress it with feathers. I wouldn't want to eat that. No one would. It's, but people would, I guess, if you were hungry. I don't think they were hungry. <laughs> no, I've seen that picture of Henry VIII. With the swan leg. Yes. Where he's going to eat the, oh wait, that's. It's not. Not real. It's not real. <laughs> and then they would use model caricatures of knights. And so they'd have like a grilled capon dressed in a paper hat with a lance sitting aside a roast piglet. Fantastic. That I would eat. And there were also beautiful sugar works, which are fine. I judge them not for that. So years passed, and these courses became known as subtleties, because irony. Because they were the least subtle thing. No, but then the emphasis at this point began to be put on the idea that they should be surprising or clever or have some kind of dramatic or theatrical turn to them. And this is where we get the idea of blackbird pies. So in 1723, John Knott, a cook to the Duke of Bolton, stated that he planned for his blackbird pie to go down this way. He says the bird's flight would extinguish the candles lighting the dining hall and create a diverting hurly-burly amongst the guests in the dark. Not a hurly-burly. That is surprising. Okay, so we start putting birds in pies and naturally we must put other things in pies. Like naughty boys? Yes. No. Famously, Charles I of France served up Geoffrey Hudson, a famous dwarf of his day. In a pie, right? In a pie. In a pie. They didn't serve him up. He was alive. It was fine. So there was a recipe dating from 1598 that says, to make pie that the birds may be alive in them and fly out when it is cut up. So they wouldn't actually cook the birds, No, right? they'd cook the top and the bottom separately and then seal it together. Okay. But the top had to be heavy enough to make sure the birds couldn't get out. Get out. <laughs> and so, yes, there were toad pies and pig pies and dwarf pies and bird pies and all kinds of various and sundry pies. And they were called coffins because there was a lid and a bottom and you put something in them. They were also called pot pies. So glad chickens and pot pies aren't alive. 
And I think the best incarnation of any of this is when they started doing more and more dwarf pies, and that's their word, not mine, and they would pop out and read poetry or sing, and once a whole band was baked in. A whole band of, of, of dwarves. Of people. Of little Dwar- people. Oh my gosh. And they, oh well, that's that's surprising. They popped out and they had instruments and they played. Well, look at that. That's a hurly-burly right there. And fun note, as I was reading through the recipe for these, they each ended with the words, serve immediately. Important instructions. And, and also, carve carefully. Don't the king just stick a sword in there. It's not going to go well. So yes, bird pies. It was a thing. I'm sad we missed it. Now we just get ladies popping out with tassels on their tatas. Can't win them all. No. And I don't think cakes are usually edible. But anyway. So from bird pie to where? Where are we going? Where's the natural progression? Well, I mean, let's go back to some folklore. Fine. Some legends. Some mythology. If you take me to a noble place from Little People Pies, I'm going to be very angry. (laughs) Noblish. Okay. Let's go to Norse mythology. Oh, yeah. So much class, you. So remember we talked about how ravens were always depicted like sitting on the gallows of the Tower of London. Well, they, they eat dead things. It makes sense. Right. And so it, it's completely logical. And now the Norse god, Odin, was often depicted with his ravens. And so Odin was the god of war and death. His battles begun by throwing a spear at the opposing army, you know, dedicating the battle and the deaths to him. And as Neil Gaiman put it, if you survive in battle, it is with Odin's grace. And if you fall, it is because he has betrayed you. I love the way he says that. I love the way Neil Gaiman literally says everything. everything yeah. Like, But he was also known as the gallows god. And this is because he hung from the world tree for nine days and nights, ate nothing, drank nothing, with a wound on his side from the spear. And during his agony and ecstasy, he was given the knowledge of runes and magic. And that's how he's able to kind of be the ultimate god. God, that's so much like a vision quest. Like, so much like, you know, Native American practice. It's so interesting. It's a world away. It is. And so Odin is called the raven god. Also, the raven tempter. Or the priest of the raven sacrifice. Cool. There's so many good titles in this episode. Right? And, you know, so he's, of course, the god of war. Which would death. make a lot of a raven sacrifice. Exactly. Like, yeah. And that's what they're kind of referencing is the, the sacrifice to the ravens, the deaths of battle. I can see where you would think that they had a mystical quality when they appeared after every battle. You know? Well, and even as far back as the 6th century, so before the kind of great Viking age, that you can find visual depictions of Odin on helmets and jewelry, frequently picturing him accompanied by one or two or more ravens. One, two, or more. Yes. Okay. So according to medieval Icelandic historian Snorri Sturluson, two ravens sit on Odin's shoulder and whisper all the news which they see and hear into his ear. They are called Hugin and Munin. He sends them out in the morning to fly around the whole world, and they return again. Thus, he finds out many new things, and this is why he's called Raven God. So they were basically the the Odin daily briefing. Yeah, you get a daily briefing from them. <laughs> and you know, he's referencing an edict poem um, in which Odin says, "Hugin and Munin fly every day over all the world. I worry for Hugin that he might not return, but I worry more for Munin 
And so that's interesting because you can translate the raven's names into meaning different things. So Hugen means thought. Okay. And Munin is a little more inconsistent on what you can translate his name to mean. It's usually thought of as memory. Okay. Uh, but it can also be translated like desire, emotion. Self. It's, yeah. And so it's kind of self-memory because you were nothing without your, without your memories. You cease to be the person you're supposed to be if you can't remember what and, you've done, said, and what made you who you were. Well, yeah, and if you think back to English class on Beowulf. <laughs> that everyone's read. That everyone took. You know, you, they talk about how the importance of people at that time was to be remembered. That was what made you a great hero. Mm-hmm. I think it's very poetic. I think it's really beautiful because your thoughts may fly off in different directions and not go where they're directed, right? Like, and that, that's kind of taken for granted and your mind can wander. But the idea that self and memory are fragile is sort of a brave thing to say. And if you look at it as, a, as an internalized thought and memory, it's, it's really beautiful. And then, like you said, looking at it in, in the context of epics and heroes of that age, your stories were all that would survive you. That, you know, like that's all your legacy would be. And the idea that memory could be lost and that's the one he's worried most about. Right. I think that's very interesting. And people do associate the sending out of the ravens, even named after kind of like one's mental processes in a way, as related to these you know, trance state journeys that jo- uh, that shamans would do back in the day. So these are like our finmen. Right. And I mean, of course, you mentioned Native Americans. You mentioned, you know, many, many cultures have this where shamans can send out either a messenger or, in this case, it would be a true part of oneself. Mm-hmm. So they would split up the self into different kind of characteristics, mm-hmm. and one can send one off. And just like in other cultures, if something happens to that part, it may not return. So it is a risky projection. Yeah, this is very in line with a lot of the early mythology associated with Finman. I was reading back for our Selkie and Mermaid episode. You know, some of the earliest stories that relate to any kind of aquatic mammals or anything like that are shaman sending off parts of themselves as whales or walruses or, you know, different animals that would go and kind of retrieve intel and come back to them. But it was still part of them. Well, of course, this is in the same area. Yes. So they definitely could be related. I'm not sure on that, but it would make sense. Or they would at least influence each other. And there are also concepts where one can have this kind of ghostly double that can appear in the form of an animal. And one scholar, Winterborn, stated that the shaman's journey through the different parts of the cosmos is symbolized by the himenja concept of the shape-shifting soul. You can see this other symbolic dimension for the Norse soul in the account of Odin's ravens. So it's interesting because... There are just so many facets of the symbolism there. You know, he's the gallows god. He's the god of death and war. And ravens are associated with all of those. And yet his ravens specifically symbolize parts of himself. And maybe the and most human parts. The parts that make him who he is and make him be able to be a great leader. And yet he willingly sends them out into the world. All right, it's interesting. I like it. Another interesting point that's associated with Vikings and Norsemen and Norse sailors is that they would keep ravens on their ships and they would use them to help 
guide them to land. How would they do that? So whenever they would get far away from land, they would send the ravens out and they would head towards land. The ravens would. Yes. And so if they were close enough to land, they could follow the raven. If they're far away, the raven would just kind of circle back and they would send it out again later. Well, it seems like a lot of people, from what I've been reading, think that that is where we get the term crow's nest. Because they would keep the crows on top. And like at the highest point in the ship. And that, coincidentally, is where a crow's nest is located. Now, crow's nest is very far away from the midpoint of the ship, and it amplifies the movement of the ship. So being sent to the crow's nest was often viewed as punishment. That would be terrible. (laughs) It would be terrible. So the modern crow's nest was invented in 1807 by Arctic explorer William Scoresby. And his invention was like the semi-barrel shape that was hoisted up the mast and had a shelf seat and a windproof hood, which was a vast improvement from when they would just send someone up the mast with a piece of canvas. Oh, that sounds terrible. And say, see what you can see. Don't vomit on us. Have a baggie. That's what you use the canvas for. William Scorsese was a pretty interesting guy. He was a British whaler. He was a self-taught navigator. And when he was young, he sailed to Spain. And apparently while he was there, he was captured. But, quote, he managed to escape through stratagem. Oh, thank goodness. He joined a whaling vessel when he was 25. And it said that he could do the job of four men in one third the time. And he was again, quote, a powerfully built man and one of keen intelligence. However, he never joined the Navy, was never part of the Navy, was never asked to be part of the Navy, and therefore he had no official rank or title. He sounds like a tall tale. Doesn't he? So, during his whaling days, there was a contest going on, and it was offered by the British Admiralty, and they were offering prize money for discovery of the passage to the Arctic Ocean. And in addition to that, they were offering 20,000 pounds in 18... 1800s money for the first to reach the North Pole and another 5,000 for anyone who came within one degree of the magnetic pole. This was so to settle a bet about if Santa was real or not. Oh my God, you're so right. So in the summer of 1806, after an unusually dry and warm winter and spring, Scoresby was able to navigate through the Greenland ice pack, which was the major obstacle in getting to the Arctic. It had receded instead of extending north as it usually did. And so he went north and he was inspired by, you know, just general curiosity, the idea of that nice purse and a shortage of whales. So he was being very practical when he set out on this mission. But he did encounter deadly ice shortly after he made it by Greenland, by where the ice pack normally was. But there were spots where it was thin enough to navigate. So they managed to get through this second ice they found and then got out into a great openness of water. And as he sailed, he made careful notes and he measured the seawater's temperature and filled in blank portions of charts. And he came within 600 nautical miles of the North Pole and sailed the furthest north of anyone to that point. But no prize money. Hmm. So during his voyage, he mapped the coast of Greenland and studied the effects on his compass caused by magnetic fields at this proximity to the North Pole. So he's doing very, very valuable work. He also documented animal life. And he wrote up his findings and everyone was like, okay, cool, whatever, bro. But 10 years later, the weather conditions repeated themselves. And Scoresby had now done 15 voyages to that region and decided that he needed to go and tell the Admiralty 
that it was time to make a break for the North Pole. Go finally figure out if Santa's real or not. And he's like, you know, the whaling up there is probably pretty good. I would not mind going if you want to send me. And they're like, this is not a commercial venture. You don't even have a fun hat. Where's your hat? Good God. No medals. This is a commercial sailor. And he done managed to do things that they'd never managed to do. And this was at a time when the Royal Navy was very powerful. They had just defeated France and Spain. And he was just annoying them. And he also annoyed the Royal Society. So he was just pissing everyone off. Because the Royal Society found the idea that a man without proper education would take it upon himself to make notes like this and do science like this and pretend to discover things was just tosh. How dare he? How dare he? They just could not take him seriously. And this was actually a conundrum that was coming up over and over again as we wanted to explore and get information about the far off yonder and academics were beginning to take themselves more and more seriously. There was a big rift between the kind of person that would go get on a boat and the kind of person that could be accepted in traditional academic circles because they were gentlemen versus people who would go schlep to the Galapagos or whatever. (laughs) It was not really reconciled for a while. The death of the naturalist. Yes. So in response to Scoresby's tip that it's a good time to go to the North Pole, the Navy did organize an expedition, and they did not allow him to command it. Not going to let that ruffian captain our ship to the North Pole. What if he finds Santa? (sighs) Santa will never like him. He'll take all of the toys. They offered him a minor position, but he was like, yeah, no. In in academic writing, he's referred to only as this whaler or one of the Greenland captains. So the Navy's voyage was led by Captain James Ross, and they did not make it to the Arctic. He and his crew were confused by optical illusions that caused peaks on the Somerset Islands to create the appearance that the sound they were in was actually a bay, and so they turned around and went the wrong way. If they only knew somebody that could have helped with that. I know, I know. But our man, Scoresby, on his little whaling ship resolution, did hold the record for sailing the farthest north for over a century. And in his time, he captained more than 30 whaling voyages to the Arctic and never lost a ship. All told, he spent 43 of his 69 years at sea, and he died in 1829, seven years after he retired. And upon his retirement, he passed his ship to his eldest son, William Jr. And he was also a very famous seafarer. And he did go and get some academic training and things. So he's taken a lot more seriously than his dad. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. But he actually retired and became a priest. Have a little priest. Right. After his wife died, he had this huge crisis of faith and decided it was time to go home. But this is our man. This is our crow's nest man. The man who gave us, christened that terrible place that none of us want to go hang out for eight hours at a time. The or was it the Vikings? Well, it may have been the Catholics. What? What? So another possible origin story for the name Crow's Nest, other than, you know, the guy who invented it was British and they're very literal and it kind of looks like a crow's nest, is offered by the Portuguese. Now, they claim that it actually has ties to a Portuguese legend about the city of Lisbon. And their patron saint, St. Vincent. And the legend goes... Oh, we're going to get some saint magic. Saint magic time! Catholic bells. Ringing, ringing, ringing. 
Anyway. So on the seal of the city of Lisbon to this day, there are two ravens perched on either end of a ship. Well, that is odd. So this goes back all the way to 1147 when King Di Afonso Enriquez promised, nay, vowed, to protect the remains of St. Vincent if he would guide the king's outnumbered forces to victory in the siege of Lisbon. And his did force... Did it work? Did yep, it work? Yes, it did. It they took the city. And so, of course it did. Yes, because we're, we're hearing about it. Of course it did. You don't hear about vows that don't materialize, right? Those don't make the, the unless, legend books. Unless they epically don't materialize. True, 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 true. And so to show his gratitude, our king sent out a crew to locate the remains of St. Vincent. So wait, where was he? He was like in Portugal? Not really. He'd been martyred by Romans and his bones were hidden in a cave. So it wasn't like he was like hanging out in Lisbon somewhere. Well, this is going to be difficult. Right. So his Romans are in a cave somewhere in Italy. Somewhere on the Iberian Peninsula. Oh, okay. So even more enigmatic. But the group did find his bones and they found that they were not alone. There were crows. They were being guarded by crows, and they would not leave bones. So what did they do? Did they kill the crows? It's terrible. No, of course they didn't kill the crows. The crows had been there ever since the moops invaded. The moors? The, in the moops, the back of the card clearly says moops. Okay. But they did not kill the crows, but they would not leave the bones, so they were like, just get the crows too. Just bring the crows too. Invasive species. So they took the bones, and they took the crows, and they went back and they got on their ship, the good ship Lollipop, it was called, and they sailed back to Lisbon. But the crows stayed perched on the ship throughout the voyage. And the bones were later interred in the cathedral in Lisbon. And to this day, the crows remain there. I wonder what happens if the crows leave. Well, clearly London will fall. No. In Portugal? No. Right. London. It's definitely okay. it's definitely London. That's just science. So they have a backup plan in case they ever go to war with the UK. Just kill the crows. Done. But as I was researching Crow's Nest and all the different explanations for where the term comes from, I did find a news article from 2013 about a mating pair of crows that built their nest at the top of a mast of a yacht. A crow's nest and a crow's nest? Yes! And I loved it so much, I just thought I'd tell you about it. So many areas of the world, during ancient times... Birds were used to help guide sailors, even though Pliny has something to say about it. No, he doesn't. Shut up, Pliny. You don't know everything. He does. He observed that Indians, real Indians, when sailing, they do not scrutinize the stars. The great bear is not visible, but they take the birds with them and send them out frequently and follow their course of flight as they make for land. Is that true? Pliny says so. I don't believe him about anything. He knows too much about too many things for all of it to actually be knowledge. <laughs> At some point, he just entered into creative writing. So another person that was in a big boat that used a crow or raven would be Noah. Like two of every animal, Noah? Yeah, that guy. Okay. So in Genesis, mm-hmm. chapter 8. Familiar. And it came to pass the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. So he sends this raven out before he sends out the famous dove. Yes, we've all seen the dove. It's like on UNICEF logos and stuff. Does the raven go away? That is a good question. And it is kind of debated because in different translations, it can mean different things. So 
if you look at the Hebrew, it can be translated as it continuously went out and returned until the waters had dried up from the earth. So some people say it kind of goes in just circles around. Well, isn't that what the ravens would do on the ships, according to legend? Like they'd go out and if there was no Mm -hmm. land, they'd just come back? Yes. And some say that it went out and then returned. And so it's a little different. And so people wonder, you know, why he sent a raven of all the birds? Why is this the one he sent out? Of all the birds and all the world, why did it have to be ravens? Right. And so this might be a cross-reference with the Epic of Gilgamesh, where there's a great flood. There's always a great flood. There is. There is. So interesting. And so in the Epic of Gilgamesh, he first sends out a dove, and then a swallow, and then a raven. So in this sense, the raven's the more positive one. So it doesn't really line up perfectly. Like some people would like to think, have you believe that it is just a copy? Okay, okay. In this one, the raven's last. Why is the raven first in the Noah story? Well, so you can go really far back for commentary on these ideas. Even back to Philo of Alexandria, argued that birds are just purely symbolic. The raven representing vice, taking pleasure in the passions which inundate and destroy lives. Okay, I think he's I think he's maybe reading a little too much into this. One can think that he's going out into the chaos. The chaos is the flood and death and destruction. So he's going out to just view the melee, the, the hurly-burly, as it were. hurly-burly. He's just circling around. And then the dove, representing virtue, can find no resting place among the destruction until eventually the water has receded enough for them to find the trees. Goes out and finds new life, new beginning. Yes. Very virginal bird metaphor here. But an interesting commentary on this that adds just this disturbing element is that after the flood in the Bible, in the Torah, the ark comes to rest on the mountaintop. Right. And so you're on the mountaintop. You can look out the window. You can kind of see what's going on. It's like you're in a crow's nest. Yeah. And you don't need to necessarily send a bird out to know if the water has receded. Because you're not floating anymore. And you can just look. Look. I see the point here. Yeah, but this commentary suggests that maybe the ravens were sent out to see kind of how much destruction was still out there. And they were out there finding the corpses and feeding off of the corpses and coming back and forth doing that. So as long as the ravens still had something to eat, it wasn't a good time to go out. Right. Because even though the floods may have receded, the destruction was still there. The death was still there. I like it. Dark. Yeah, and once the raven can't find any food and returns home and stays there, then he can send out the doves to go and look. Because they send out the dove, and after the third time, it does not return, because it's returned home, as doves and pigeons do. Homing pigeons. Exactly. Right. So possibly the raven could be a symbol of the receding waters and it's hovering over the ark as a symbol of you know god's ever present grace but that really doesn't line up with all the other judeo christian kind of representations of the raven except for elijah but there's always exceptions <laughs> okay so you know i grew up southern baptist right i do know that yeah okay well i feel like i have to disclaim that fact we were always taught that like the raven went out and was a shithead and didn't come back. Like, that was how it was explained. The dove was faithful. The dove returned until, you know, brought him the branch. 
and things. And that was the dove's duty. And the raven brought nothing back because it was just a shithead bird. Trash bird, as I call grackles. But my question was, then why are ravens? Because if you send out the male and it disappears into the ether, or you send, you know, like if you send out one of the pair, how do you get more ravens? Well, that's getting into some fundamentalism right there. Right. No, I, but I'm telling you, I grew up with a very fundamentalist view on this. And with my brain in a fundamentalist church, it was going to be a Malay. And this is what I'm using that word again. But this is one of the first times I ever openly questioned my Sunday school teacher. Are you like five? Yes. What about birds? Why birds? Why are birds? <laughs> and that was the beginning and the end for my Southern Baptistism. So according to the Yakut Shimone, which is an agatic compilation of the Hebrew Bible written in the 13th century, after Adam and Eve's son Abel died, they did not know what to do with the body. So seeing the distress that they were in, a raven kills one of his companions to show the grieving couple how to dig a hole and bury the body. To thank the raven for his kindness, God feeds baby ravens until their feathers turn black, after which their parents take over. Okay, that's weirdly endearing. And disturbing. And disturbing. Interesting to point out that, like, they had a dead body. What do we do with it? We've never had this problem before. No, right. Definitely. And so in Muslim tradition, in the Surat al-Ma'idah, he described a story of how the crow teaches the son of Adam to cover the dead body of his brother. Quote, Then Allah sent a crow digging up the earth so that he might show him how he should cover the dead body of his brother. He said, Woe me, do I lack the strength that I should be like this crow and cover the dead body of my brother? So he became of those who regret. So good, right? He became of those who regret. It should be the title of like the next Pulitzer Prize winning book. <laughs> I hope that would be good. So some interesting Islamo-Judeo-Christian traditions related to ravens. Now, of course, we have to go to the Greeks. We already talked about freaking Pliny. Not Pliny. He's lost my trust. No, we have to talk about Ovid. Okay, him I'll tolerate. The Roman Greek, whatever. So Metamorphosis, in which he talks about a story about Apollo. I know that guy. Sun, music, chariot, the works. Definitely blonde. He's got a lot of the good stuff. What grown man has blonde hair? Long ago, the ravens were not black. Their plumage then was white as any dove, white-feathered, snow-white as the geese, as white as swans that haunt the streams. Got it. Disgrace reversed the raven's hue from white to black, because offense was given by his chattering tongue. So he annoyed someone and they turned him black? O oh, glorious Apollo, dutiful to the coronas of Larissa, fairest maid of all ammonia. Was a grateful charm, a joy to thee, whilst faithful to thy love, while none defamed her chastity. When the raven, bird of Apollo, learned the nymph had been unfaithful, mischief bent that bird, spreading his white wings, hastened to impart the sad news to his master. So the raven told on her? Yeah. And he, he blackened the messenger? So when Apollo heard the tale of the busy raven, made such haste to tell... He dropped his plectrum and his laurel wreath, and his bright countenance went white with rage. He seized his trusting arms, and having bent his certain bow, pierced with a deadly shaft that bosom, which so often he had pressed against his own. So he's killing the nymph. He's killing Coronas, his lover. Coronas moaned in pain, and as she drew the keen shaft from the wound, her snow-white limbs were bathed in purple blood. And thus she wailed, Ah, Apollo, punishment is justly mine, but wherefore did thou not await the hour of birth? For by my death, an innocent is slain. 
Oh, no. She was pregnant. She was pregnant. And also, oh, my God, the phallic imagery. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Freud. 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 Mourning his thoughtless deed, blaming himself, he vents his rage upon the talking bird. So he builds a funeral pyre for his love that he has killed. <laughs> and he regrets It's like a Greek tragedy, man. Right. So trying to kind of resurrect her, he is able to pull out his offspring and revive Asclepius, the god of medicine. Oh, well, lucky for you. Hey, Asclepius, the staff, not the staff of Mercury, but the true medicinal staff, with where it's just a, sh- a staff and a, a snake coiling around it. Like the ringworm? That is a possible origin for it, yes. The guinea worm, not the ringworm. So what's a guinea worm? We have to tell the story now. No, a guinea worm. A guinea worm, a fireworm, it is a parasite that goes into your blood vessels mm-hmm. through your foot and the only way to cure it back in the day was to slowly 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 pull it out of your leg so you would re- like pierce it and slowly inch by inch pull out of your body by winding it around a stick yes and some people think that might be the source of the imagery for the staff of asclepius interesting side note that's all we've got <sighs> But he's still pissed off at the raven because, you know, the raven caused all this. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> Different Greek tale. Okay, sorry. Then to him he called the silly raven, high in hopes of large acquittal due for all his words. But angry with his meddling ways, the god turned the white feathers of that bird to black and then forbade forever more to perch among the favored birds whose plumes are white. I kind of think this is a misdirected anger. Maybe a little bit. He's not going to eat crow. He's making the crow eat crow. <laughs> no! So meta. So we have another set of raven tales that exist in the wide world of folklore. And these are from Native American and First Nations myths that center upon the character of Raven. In these tales, Raven is a trickster transforming character, much like Rabbit and Coyote. These tales are especially prominent in this Pacific Northwest, and in British Columbia, as well as Alaska. So Raven is a hero, but kind of an anti-hero. He can be very clever, but he can also be just plain stupid. And he's sort of weirdly human and very easily adopts human characteristics. So what do you mean by that? So like in stories, they might say like, even if, if he's currently in Raven form, they might say something about his hand in a way that they don't with other animals. It's interesting. I do think it's really interesting. Some people think he's a purely human character that can transform into a raven. The raven was just one of his favored appearances. Yeah, he's really characterized by his voracious hunger. And he's often seen as being a little bit greedy and having kind of a highly charged carnal appetite. And his stories usually begin with him instigating a crisis. And inevitably, this causes massive social chaos and some sort of physical challenge for Raven as well. And they're usually resolved at his expense. So you can see he has to eat crow too. Yes, lots of crow eating. So the cycle, the Raven cycle, generally begins with boy's birth. And they include his adventures as well as those of Raven. And his adventures usually include the seduction of either his aunt or the daughter of the Sky Chief. So either way, some sort of relationship taboo, either incest or unsanctioned liaison cross-class barrier. Mm, So some unlawful carnal knowledge. Yeah, that one takes place. And once the taboo is broken, 
boy attempts to escape the consequences of his actions. And usually the Great Flood is the result of his efforts to escape. That's interesting. Now, Raven is generally thought to be the product of this union. And during his flight, or his attempted escape, Raven falls to Earth. And generally he's adopted by a chief and becomes part of a tribe, grows up in a tribe. But when he becomes an adult, Raven transforms the Earth from a dark, arid land inhabited by a variety of ferocious monsters into a land with rivers, lakes, and mountains which can be inhabited by animals and human beings. In some tales, he actually creates the earth. Yes. With his excrement. Oh, I didn't read that one. Oh, yeah. Fun. Sorry you missed out on that. But he, like, literally creates the landscape, transforms the landscape through trickery and deception. There are some tales that include Raven taking on the form of a woman in order to embarrass men or killing a monster by putting stones down its throat. And he often takes on the role of a bungling host, which is a motif that's often found in old folktales. And a guest is fed by an animal wizard and then tries to imitate by doing the same thing, but doesn't have the magic and fails. Now, in other areas, Raven can be replaced by other animal tricksters, such as Mink, Blue Jay, Fox, and Coyote. And there are some Raven stories where Raven has some similarities to Prometheus, Right, such as when he leases the sun and the moon. Right. He's a flawed deity, kind of like Prometheus, and it makes him very empathetic towards men, but also very prone to making mistakes that cost him dearly. One of the stories that has a similar structure to Prometheus is Chief's Rattle, and the story goes, In the beginning, the world was dark. The people wondered and argued about something they had heard of but never seen. Daylight. Some said that the river chief kept daylight in a special box. Raven lived in a dark world. He was sly, wise, greedy, and meddlesome, and he could change his form to suit his own needs. Raven decided to find out about daylight, so he turned into a hemlock needle and dropped into a freshwater spring where the river chief's daughter had come to the spring to drink. Raven floated into her cup and she swallowed him. In due time, Raven was born as the grandson of the river chief. Raven grew very fast, and his grandfather adored him, even though he threw tantrums, and his eyes looked a little like Raven's. Oh, that's creepy. Black, deep eyes. When he screamed, his doting grandfather would let him play with the moon box. He opened the box, and the moon escaped into the sky. When Raven wailed again, his grandfather let him play with the box of daylight, And as soon as the box was in his possession, Raven changed back into a bird and flew through a smoke hole and disappeared into the darkness. Raven brought the box to the people and opened it slightly, allowing a few streaks of daylight to escape. But they did not believe he actually had daylight. Angered by the people's skepticism, he threw open the box and flooded the world with a bright light of day. So in a way, he's the trickster, but he's also kind of tricked into releasing it. Mm-hmm. And he, so many times with Raven, he does go in with a plan and then doesn't stick to it and loses the upper hand very quickly. There's another story called How the Raven Lost His Beak. So Raven was out in the ocean trying to catch some fish, and he managed to catch enough to feed the village, but he was still hungry. He looked around, but he couldn't see any more fish, and he was about to give up when he saw a fisherman trying to catch some fish himself. The fisherman didn't really interest Raven so much, but the bait looked like it might make a tasty morsel. Now, Raven knew he was faster than any man, so he didn't even think twice about it. He swam right over to the boat and snatched the bait up. Raven didn't realize 
that the fisherman was paying attention the whole time. As soon as he felt a pull on the line, he started to reel it in. This took Raven by surprise. He thought he was so clever that he wouldn't be caught. As soon as he realized he was caught, he started struggling for all he was worth. Eventually, the fisherman pulled so hard that Raven's beak pulled right off. Oh, shit. <laughs> the fisherman pulled the thing out of the water and picked it up, and he couldn't figure out what it was. While he was taking so long looking at this black thing he caught, Raven flew out of the water onto his boat and snatched the beak out of the confused fisherman's hands and stuck it back on. It wasn't until much later that Raven realized it wasn't straight anymore, that it was curved now, but he decided he liked it better that way, and it's been that way ever since. Yeah, it looks good this way. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, interestingly, Raven does, as we said, play a big part in the flood mythos. And this is a story that's told by the Lecho and the Dingies. And this is a great tribe which stretches from Alaska to the borders of Arizona. And they say that there's a certain man that they call the Mariner. And he was the first person to ever build a canoe. One day, he was rocking his canoe from side to side, sent forth such waves on all sides that the earth was flooded and his canoe foundered. Just then, a gigantic hollow straw came floating past, and the man contrived to scramble into it and caulk up the ends, and in it he floated about safely until the flood dried up. Then he landed on a high mountain where the hollow straw had come to rest, and there he abode many days, wherefore they call it the place of the old man to this day. It is the rocky peak which you see right at Fort McPherson in the Rocky Mountains, farther down the Yukon River. The channel contracts and the water rushes rapidly between two high cliffs. There the mariner took his stand, straddle-wise, with one foot planted on each cliff, with his hands dripping in the water. He caught the dead bodies of men as they floated past on the current, just as you might catch fish in a big net. But of the living men he could not find one. The only live thing within sight was a raven, who, gorged with food, sat perched atop a lofty rock fast asleep. The mariner climbed up the rock, surprised the raven in his nap and thrust him without much ado into a bag intending to make short work of master raven the raven said i beg and entreat you that you will not cast me down from this rock for if you do be sure that i will cause all the men who yet survive to disappear and you will find yourself all alone in the world undeterred by this threat which come on hell of a threat the man let the raven in the bag drop and the bird was dashed to pieces at the foot of the mountain however the words of the raven came true, for though the man traveled far and wide, not a single living person could he discover anywhere. Only Loach and Pike did he see sprawling in the mud and warming themselves in the sun. So he bethought him of the raven and returned to the spot where the mangled body, or rather the bones of the bird, lay bleaching at the foot of the mountain. For he thought within himself, maybe the raven will help me repeople the earth. So he gathered the scattered bones and fitted them together as well he could, and by blowing on them, caused the flesh and the life to return to them. Then the man and the raven went together to the beach, where the loach and the pike were sleeping in the sun. Bore a hole in the stomach of the pike, said the raven to the man, and I will do the same to the loach. And the man did bore a hole in the pike's stomach, and out came a crowd of men, and the raven did likewise in the other, and a multitude of women came forth from the belly of the fish, and that is how the world was repeopled after the great flood. So it's interesting to kind of have this gray raven character associated with a different flood mythos. Right. And there's more. There's even more. Now, there's an important tradition, Plingets in Alaska. And this is the tradition of Yell the Raven. He's not only the ancestor of the Raven clan, but the creator of men. 
He caused the plants to grow and set the sun and the moon and the stars in their places. But he had a wicked uncle who had murdered Yell's ten elder brothers, either by drowning them or, according to others, by stretching them on a board and sawing off their heads with a knife. To the commission of these atrocious crimes, he was instigated by a passion of jealousy, for he had a young wife of whom he was very fond, and he knew that according to the Plingett Law, his nephews, the sons of his sister, would inherit his widow whenever he himself departed for the Vale of Tears. So when Yell grew up to manhood, his affectionate uncle endeavored to dispose of him, as he had disposed of his ten elder brothers, but all in vain. For Yell was not a common child. His mother had conceived him through swallowing a round pebble, which she had found on the shore at ebb tide, and by means of another stone she had contrived to render the infant invulnerable. So the knife made no impression at all on Yell. Not discouraged by this failure, the old villain attempted the life of his virtuous nephew in other ways. In his fury, he said, let there be a flood. And a flood there was, which covered up all the mountains. But Yell assumed his wings and feathers, which he could put off and on at pleasure. And spreading his pinions, he flew up into the sky and there remained hanging by his beak for ten days, while the water of the flood rose so high that it lapped his wings. When the water sank, he let go and dropped like an arrow into the sea, where he fell on a soft bank of seaweed, and was rescued from his perilous position by a sea otter, which brought him to safe land. What happened to mankind during the flood is not mentioned. There's some interesting similarities to the hero and the white rabbit stories. Mm-hmm which we talked about in the rabbit lore episode <laughs> of kind of being related to the flood and helping create man and even his association with aquatic mammals, <laughs> like aquatic river animals. I mammals. know, right? It's, it's odd. What I picked out when I was reading through that is that Raven hung from a tree for 10 days. Hmm. That was very interesting. And then there's another legend and it's another Tlingit legend and Raven causes the flood in a different way. In this one, he put a woman under the world to attend to the rising and falling of the tides. And once he wished to learn about all that goes on under the sea, so he caused the woman to raise the water in order that he might go in there while it was dry. But he asked her to heave the ocean up slowly so that when the flood came, the people might have time to load their canoes with necessary provisions and get on board. So the ocean rose gradually, bearing on its surface the people in their canoes. And as they rose up, and up the sides of the mountains, they could see the bears and other wild beasts walking about on the unsubmerged tops. Many of the bears swam out to their canoes, hoping that they could get aboard. But then the people, who had been wise enough to take their dogs with them, were very glad of it, for the noble animals kept the bears away. The people's canoes were then stuck on mountains, and since they were at the top of mountains, there was very little firewood to be had, and it was a very dangerous time. But when Raven came back from under the sea, he saw fish lying high and dry on the mountains and in the creeks, and said to them, Stay there and be turned into stones, and so they became stones. And when he saw people coming down, he would say, in a like manner, Turn to stones just where you are, and they turned to stones where they were. After all, mankind had been destroyed in this way. Raven created them afresh out of leaves. And he made this new generation out of leaves. People know that he must have turned into stone all the men and women who survived the great flood. And that, too, this is why, to this day, so many people die in autumn with the fall of the leaf. And when flowers and leaves are fading and falling, we also pass away like them. It's kind of touching. But I love that he's just curious. He just wants to see what the bottom of the ocean is like. And so he's like, ah, better kill all of mankind. They look like they're having a rough go of it. 
Everyone's killing all of mankind. Stop it. Would you two stop it? I do think it's interesting that we see the raven repeated in so many flood myths. You think it's it's kind of in relation to to death? I mean, one of the more obvious reasons for everyone having a flood myth is that everywhere has big floods. Right, but the the one of the earlier stories I read about the guy getting sealed up in the straw and coming to rest on the mountaintop is just so much like Noah. Very interesting. There are so many mo- more motifs than just the flood that oh. it seems like it's something more. You could delve into that for We're going to do hours. a 15-part series <laughs> on the Great Flood. We'd have to. You would. I don't even think you're allowed to write a doctoral thesis on that. You could, you would just never finish. <laughs> so we talked some about the raven and its ties to the Tlingit people of Alaska. One of their major founding myths is, you know, the raven cycle and yell the raven. And they have an interesting process of heredity and relatedness. There are two moities. What's a moity? It is defined as each of two parts into which something can be divided. In anthropology specifically, it is each of two social or ritual groups into which a people is divided, especially among Australian Aborigines or some American Indians, a part or portion. And so in the Tlingit culture, there are two moities. There's the Eagle Wolf Clan and the Raven Clan. One inherits membership into the moity through their mother. They belong to whichever group she belongs to, regardless of their gender. And Modis are further divided into clans, and each of them has their own emblem. For example, one could be of the Eagle Modi, but the Killer Whale clan. And then the final subdivision is the house, which consists of extended family members under one animal name. And these are 40 to 50 people, and they used to all live together under one roof in large cedar plank homes. And today, most people live in single-family homes, but these 100-foot-long buildings are used for ceremonial duties. Now, traditionally, people were expected to marry outside of their moiety, but today, you can get away with it, however, it is still frowned upon. I thought this was interesting because there's a unique focus on women in this culture due to the matrilineal lineage that they cite. And women were allowed to participate in most creative aspects of cultural life, such as rituals and art and storytelling and music and things like that. And they're on a near equal footing with men, though they did not hunt. However, they could assume leadership roles in the clan. So if only two things can define you in the whole world, and a raven's one of them, it's pretty integral to your culture. I just think of the beautiful carvings of ravens among the other animals. Mm-hmm. That you see in that kind of Northwest. Raven always looks good on a totem pole. Like that's one that's always beautiful. So there's one other Native American tale that is very well known about the crow, kind of related to him bringing light and fire and being this Prometheus character. And that is the Rainbow Crow from the Lenape tribe. And so this is an excerpt from James Alexander Thorne book. The Rainbow Crow is beautiful to hear and to see back in the days when it never got cold. Back in the ancient days, before Snow Spirit appeared in the world, when the Snow Spirit did appear, all the people and animals were freezing, and a messenger was selected to go up to the Creator, who creates by thinking what will be. The messenger was to ask the Creator to think of the world as being warm again, so that they would not all freeze to death. Rainbow Crow was chosen to go, and he flew upward for three days, and he got the Creator's attention by singing beautifully. But even though he begged for the Creator to make it warm again, the creator said he could not 
because he had thought of cold and he could not unthink it. I know that feeling. But he did think of fire, a thing that could warm the creatures even when it was cold. And so he poked a stick into the sun until it was burning and then gave it to Rainbow Crow to carry back to the earth for the creatures. The creator told Rainbow Crow to hurry before it burned all up. Now Rainbow Crow dove down and flew as fast as he could. The burning stick charred all of his beautiful feathers until they were black. And since he was carrying a stick in his beak, he breathed the smoke and heat until his voice was hoarse. And so the Rainbow Crow was black and now has an unpleasant, cawing voice forever after. But all the creatures honored him. He had brought fire for everyone to use. And he is still honored today and no one will kill it for food. And if you look closely at the crow's black feathers, you can still see many colors gleaming in the black. Oh my god, that's so good. Like grackles, Sam. Like grackles, iridescent feathers. I love that even back in the day, they were like, yeah, that's smoker's cough, dude. So interestingly, the Aborigine people in Australia have a similar tale to why the raven is black. Why is the raven black, Jacob? How is the raven like a writing desk? Well, the Wolverang Kori people have a tale, and it's about these seven young women called the Karatgurk, who lived on the Yarra River, which is kind of where Melbourne is now. And they lived on yams, and they cooked them. And they would only give crow, so we kind of use crow raven interchangeably in this episode. They are related, but they're not the same. And they would cook the yams for themselves, and they would just give crow raw ones. And that's one, not very nice. I know, but Craig didn't know any better until one day he tried this awesome cooked yam. Once you go cooked yam, you never go back. So the re- women refused to give him fire, and so he decided to trick them out of it. He caught and hid a lot of snakes in an ant mound, and then called to the girls that he had found a large ant mound, and the ant larva tasted much better than yams. The women ran to the mound and began digging into it with their sticks. And the snakes came hissing out and chased them away, screaming. But then the woman turned around and began to hit out at the snakes with their digging sticks. Badass bitches. They hit so hard that some of the live coals were knocked off. And Crow was waiting for this, and he pounced on the live coals and hid them in a kangaroo skin bag he had prepared. Of course he had. Pouch was already in it. So Eagle Hawk saw that Crow had these coals and asked to borrow them because he went to cook a possum. Of course he did. This is an of course he did story. Crow offered to cook it for him, and when he had done so, threw it down to Eagle Hawk, who saw that it was still smoking. He tried to blow it in, into flame, but failed. He ate the possum, and while he did so, the quarry people gathered around and shouted at Crow to give them fire. Now this scared Crow, and at last he flung some live coals at the crowd. Cool. Good decisions. Now, the Korok guru of Fire-Tailed Finch picked up some of the coals and hid them behind his back. And that's why they have red tails. The eagle hawk's shaman helper, the non-king Kestrel, and Thara the quail hawk grabbed the rest of the coals. Then the coals made a bushfire which burnt crow black. So it sounds like a Harley Burley is what, what you're describing. The story also goes on to explain some other mysteries, ge- geological kind of formations. And also the Karatgurk were swept up into the sky and they became the Pleiades. The stars representing their glowing fire sticks. I feel like we just solved the mysteries of the universe. All of them. Before we move on, I do want to point out that I discovered something in my research that I did not think I was going to have an opportunity to bring up. But since you mentioned ant piles, (laughs) crows and ravens and jackdaws do a thing called anting. 
Yes, they do. Where they dive into ant piles and smush up ants <laughs> and rub them on their feathers. Like a nice perfume. Or an oil, like a like slicking them up. I don't know what they're doing. Do you know what they're doing? I do not. <laughs> I mean, sure? some people some people think it might be like an insect repellent, <laughs> or they might just like it, or it could be could help soothe if they have like an itch or anything like that, or help with kind of keeping them clean. Anyway, found that very interesting. <laughs> Anting, it's a thing. <laughs> It is interesting to see how much ravens are just integral in so many different cultures, mythology, and folklore. And they're always these really wise birds, but they're also represent this kind of dark, evil, trickster side of things. They are such a gray character for being such a black bird. (laughs) I think that they definitely play the fool a lot there seems to be a universal acknowledgement that their plain appearance doesn't match their mental acuity they seem very favored in the intellect department they're very bright birds but they're very dull looking right and they try to explain it off as maybe they were doing this great deed and that's why they're black or they screwed up and that's why they're black but the intelligence of ravens and crows has come more and more into light over the past 50 60 years and we have found some interesting things to do with the ravens other than to ward off the fall of kingdoms or you know repeople earth i guess that's important but no more important than england and the queen god save her raven save her raven save the queen but you know what you can do with birds. Eat them. Spy. You can spy with birds. Caw, caw, caw. Caw, 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 caw. You're doing the Mission Impossible. Caw, caw, caw. Caw, Set. See the raven like dropping down to the laser wire. Just about, dude. So this story begins with Marion and Keller Breland, who were working with B.F. Skinner. I know that guy. What's he do? Was integral in developing... In- in establishing developmental stages of people. But they worked together while they were students, and they helped Skinner develop his ideas of operant psychology. And they founded Animal Behavioral Enterprises in the 1940s. And this is a commercial venture based on conditioning of animal behavior through positive reinforcement. And they opened a place called the IQ Zoo. In Hot Springs, Arkansas. Wow, are they trying to hide it? <laughs> no, they actually put smart people in it. Because <laughs> there were like seven of them, and they wanted to study them. Just kidding. But it opened in 1951, and they housed chickens who could walk tightropes, chickens that dispensed souvenirs to paying customers, danced to music, and played baseball. Well, this is a great American institution. Yes, it is. And they also had rabbits who would kiss their girlfriends, ride fire trucks sound siren and rolled wheels of fortune and they had ducks that would play drums and pianos and raccoons who played basketball fantastic this is amazing let's go (laughs) this is amazing now with her staff marion applied operant conditioning to over 150 species and they had a list of very interesting commercial clients that included united states theme parks oceanariums and the u.s military of course of the military projects conducted by ABE, those involving birds were among the most intriguing. 
Birds were used to save lives, as shown in the, with the rescue birds, but they were also used for reconnaissance and espionage. They used pigeons, ravens, and crows for this work. Birds were taught to deliver and pick up packages from windowsills or similar locations. They were directed to appropriate locations with laser pointers. I absolutely adore the photographs of the pigeons with these old-timey cameras attached to them. They are very, very subtle. They're very subtle. They're as subtle as the subtleties. I'm going to read to you a little from Smithsonian Magazine. There would be a rustle of oily black feathers as the raven settled onto the window ledge of a once grand apartment building in some Eastern European capital. The bird would pace across the ledge a few times, but quickly depart. In an apartment on the other side of the window, no one would shift his attention from the briefing papers or the chilled vodka set out on the table. That's how we know they're Russian. Exactly. Nor would Boris... No, just kidding. Nor would anything seem amiss in the jagged piece of gray slate resting on the ledge, seemingly jetsam from the roof of an old, unloved building. Those in the apartment might be dismayed to learn, however, that the slate had not come from the roof, but from a technical laboratory at CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. (laughs) In a small cavity at the slate center was an electronic transmitter, powerful enough to pick up their conversation. The raven had transported it to the ledge, and it was no random city bird but a U.S. trained intelligence asset. That's right, it was. <laughs> and then he drank the vodka and knocked the glass over. So as the IQ Zoo was training its raccoons to play basketball, they were also training espionage ravens. I love that people that were training chickens to play baseball were also training spy birds. Right, and that's actually noted in the Smithsonian article. They say the same Methods that lay behind Priscilla the fastidious pig or the educated hen informed projects such as training ravens to deposit and retrieve objects, pigeons to warn of enemy ambushes, and even cats to eavesdrop on human conversations. Right, like the famed cat experiments where they implanted hearing devices. Yes. And then they were immediately run over by (laughs) trucks. That's an urban legend. No, they really did have, there was a guy who was like a cat person, so they like, they left a stray cat by his house and thought he would pick it up, and he did. But anyway. So the Breelands were originally contacted by naval intelligence to see if they could help train dolphins to help identify and warn of submarine attacks. And of all the birds they trained, ravens stood out. It was said of Breland, ravens in his mind are the geniuses of the bird world and kind of the Jason Bourne. They can sort of operate on their own. They're very, very intelligent. They can lift things. And this was part of another program. They trained ravens basically to deposit things in rooms in particular places. And those things could be, you know, listening devices, for example. I love it. I love this story. And it is interesting that over the last few years, there's been a lot of research into raven and crow intelligence. Right. I had a Washington Post piece pop up in my news feed the other day. It's like the planet of ravens, question mark. Right. And it is almost... As disturbing as the idea of the Planet of the Apes, how intelligent they are. So John Mersloff, a wildlife biologist at the University of Washington, 
has been studying this for years. And while studying crows, he started to think that they might recognize him. So what you're saying is he had had a little too much of the CIA supplied LSD? Maybe so. He thought they were talking to him. Well, they do talk. That's very true. They can mimic human voices. And the ones in the Tower of London will say like, hello. No. (laughs) Off with your head! Off with your head! Off with your head. But he noticed that birds that he had previously trapped seemed way more weary of the particular scientist that had trapped them. (laughs) He said, well, it's an annoyance, but it's not really hampering our work. But then I thought, we should test this directly. Oh my God. Ever the scientist. (laughs) Right. I would think the same thing. And so he wanted to make sure that the crows or ravens would recognize people and not just like the clothing they were wearing or their gait or anything like that, but actually recognize them. Like their faces. Yes. Facial recognition. Yes. What? And so what he did was he took people. Did he trap them? (laughs) No, he trapped the ravens. He put masks on them. Caveman masks. Uh Uh-uh. And he had them go out and trap birds. Like Geico caveman mask? Like the commercials. They So easy a caveman could do it? Whatever the... Oh, God, that's all throwback. <laughs> well, I'm thinking it's probably right for the time of the study because it's been published. So he designated this caveman mask as dangerous. And then he also had people wear like a Dick Cheney mask. Yes! Which, for some reason, he marked as neutral. Wait, where the the caveman masks were supposed to be scary? Yes. And the Dick Cheney mask was not? Well, it wasn't that the mask was scary. It was what they did while they were wearing the mask. I really think he should have flipped those, too. (laughs) Dick Cheney is terrifying. So he would have the people in the dangerous caveman mask trap the birds and band them. And they banded seven crows on the university's campus in Seattle. In the months that followed, he would have volunteers... Who did not know what they were getting themselves into, <laughs> put on the different masks. <laughs> and as they were obser- just observing, the birds are walking through campus. <laughs> walking through campus in a Dick Cheney mask? Yes. Who <laughs> was a college sophomore? Hey, you got extra credit, okay? The crows would start to scold the people wearing the dangerous caveman mask. So you're a college sophomore. You've signed up for this thing for extra credit, and you've been told to wear a caveman mask, and you're walking through campus, and you don't know what's going on or why you're doing it, and suddenly a conspiracy of ravens begins to go, no, 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 no. But interestingly, even though they only captured and banded seven crows and released them. They told their friends. They told their friends. No! So Dr. Marsloff said that recently when he was walking through campus while wearing the dangerous mask, the caveman mask, he was scolded by 47 of the 53 crows he encountered. Holy crap, they're gossips. So yeah, so hypothesizing, of course, that crows learn to recognize these threatening humans from their parents and from others in the flock, because this was years after the study was even done. And he's still wearing the caveman mask? I think it's stuck. <laughs> And they repeated the study with more realistic masks, and they got the same results, even again with different people wearing them, different clothes, different gait, different mannerisms, smell, etc. So you can rule out all those other things. It's got to be It's a really well-designed experiment. And you can definitely 
post a video of them doing it on the website. I want to see this video, like, now. And this has been held up by other ornithologists, you know, like Kevin J. McGowan, who's an ornithologist in Cornell, who trapped and banded crows in upstate New York for 20 years, said he was regularly followed by the birds who he had given handouts of peanuts to and harassed by the ones he had trapped in the past. They haunted him. I mean, you have to wonder, it's like, what's their language like? How are they able to let people know that these are the dangerous ones? These are the okay ones. This is the different. Oh my God, I need to know the answer to this. Cornell has an amazing ornithology program. Fantastic website. So this might be a byproduct of their acuity to recognize each other. And even after like many months of separation. If they can tell the differences in ravens. A human face has got to be like a billboard. Right, just think about when you're walking around, like, you can't tell the difference between four crows sitting there. No, unless it's Dumbo and they all wear different hats. Right, you're like, that's the racist one. Wait, that's all of them. (laughs) Jim Crow. So bad, it's so bad. There are other really interesting signs of raven intelligence. Now, ravens can even manipulate other animals to do work for them. Yes, So ravens will call wolves and coyotes to a prospective meal, so to a a dead animal, so that they can open up the meat and make it more accessible to the birds. Oh my god. And they will even wait for other birds with specialized foraging skills to make a catch and then seize the prey for themselves. Ah. So even though they have much smaller brains, isn't their their bird brain? This kind of shows that that size of the brain doesn't matter, but the neuronal density and the structure, which is much more complex than one would guess. And to bring it back to some tales, you know, Aesop has that story, The Crow in the Pitcher, where the crow wants to get a taste of water, so he drops rocks into it until the water rises enough for him to get a taste. So the crow understands displacement. <laughs> right. And so this actually was tested with rooks, a small type of crow, and they easily did this. They were placed in a room containing a small pile of pebbles, and there was a worm in a tube of water. They not only would place pebbles in the water to make the worm rise up, but they would choose the larger pebbles. So they knew that that would cause the water to rise more. Right. So Archimedes was so inspired when he sat in his bathtub and the water flowed over the sides and he began to understand the theory of displacement that he ran naked into the street screaming, Eureka! Raven! And a crow can do it? Yeah. A crow has figured this out? Apparently. Criminy, they're going to take over. Well, ravens have really complex social structures. They can, don't always, but they can pair for life. (laughs) When you say they can, but they don't always, like they occasionally get divorced. Oh, yeah. Definitely. (laughs) One of the ravens of the Tower of London dispatched some of her mates. She could fly a little better than her mates, and she uh, tricked them into flying too high up one of the towers. And what, they melted like Icarus? What happened to them? They fell and died. Oh my god. Talk about a black widow, huh? Some researchers wanted to look at these kind of dominance relationships. You know, you can have these bonded pairs, like I said, and then you can have these loosely bonded groups conspiracies Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so whenever a new bird would show up and try to move in on the action the birds that were more dominantly paired would fend off that other bird like together yeah well and just to form a loose bond not like trying to mate or anything like that 
And the researchers interpreted these results to show that the strongly allied birds were attempting to preclude the threat of competition by eliminating any kind of future alliance that could be created. Right. They didn't want to be forced to like forced reciprocity or anything almost. Yeah. So you can see they're like looking into the future. Maybe. Does that mean they can plan? That's the thought. And so not only are they planning, but there's also the idea that they may have theory of mind. So they're basically, when we talk about them having a theory of mind, they're able to project expected behaviors and yes. they're able to understand that their behavior affects others and vice versa. Right. And Which is something we talked about on the Feral Kids episode is one of those things that has long been said is separates us from the animals. Now, so ravens do cache food. Like a lot of animals do. But it's long been known that if ravens can see that they're being watched, they behave differently whenever they're trying to hide their food (laughs) than if they are alone. They are conspirators. So this doesn't necessarily say they possess theory of mind because there can be confounding effects of gaze cues. But what they did was they trained captive ravens to look through a peephole. And that allowed them to cache food with the people opened or closed. So the researchers were able to show that ravens behaved as if they were being watched when they could hear ravens and the hole was open. But not when they could hear ravens, but the peephole was closed. So this suggests that if ravens are capable of remembering their own experiences of looking through a peephole to see into another room... And they can imagine that another bird might be doing the same thing on the other side, even if they cannot see this bird. So this begs the question, if they have this this theory of mind, this imagination, this idea of being able to look into the future as part of their cognitive processes, and if they are kind of closer to humans than we may have ever expected. So while the Victorians may have just fancied ravens of the tower of london i like your story i like your story of brahm's head being planted there so my favorite ravens that we've talked about are thought and memory odin's ravens the ones that he sent out into the world the ones he was worried wouldn't return that idea says something about our need for culture and roots and i think in a strange way the ravens at the tower of london might be those roots that are shared by that people the thoughts and the memories the collective consciousness. Things that connect us to the past and bring that past into the present. And as we consider these very intelligent birds, these birds that are surprising, whose nondescript appearance or ominous appearance doesn't necessarily align with their almost incomprehensible abilities, we see that for centuries, people have known that there's more to them than meets the eye. And they've always felt a special kinship like they were just a little bit more powerful than nature should have allowed and maybe that's why we grant them such high prestige and such power even if it's a little scary even if it's a little dark maybe it's why we believe that they could be manifestations of both thought and memory just a little uncanny just a little too human a little too smart and in that way we can see them as extensions of ourselves the parts that we send out into the world and hope return and that's not just a story it's not just a story society 13 podcast network 
Redefining Podcasts, Society-13.com. I like to listen.